Hi, I'm Jessica from Tudor Time Machine. Before we start the next episode, I wanted to let you know that we're offering our very first line of Tudor Time Machine merch. So these six items are only available until November 30th. Then their history. See what I did there? Go to our Facebook page and hit the Shop Now button to see our Tudorific designs, the best pod swag out there. This inaugural offering is 10% off, so don't miss these items that declare your interest and your style. And enjoy this episode of the Tudor Time Machine podcast. Hey ho, Tudor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tudor Time Machine, and this is episode... 32 of our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you're new here, it's best to start at episode one because this is a story project and it goes in order. We're super thrilled to be reaching thousands of tutor-minded people from all over the world. Welcome, and it's so exciting for us to be here and to share our story with you. And if you're enjoying it, we hope that you will support us by buying some Tudor Time Machine swag. Yes, please do. Go to our Facebook page and just hit the Shop Now button. Personally, I recommend the Do You Tudor shirt because I do tutor. <laughs> so, and I like other people who do too. <laughs> so personally, I like the Time Traveler t-shirt because I would like to time travel back to Tudor England. In our last episode, we saw a fight and some makeup sex between Anne and Wyatt. But now we're returning to 1565 as Philomena and Constance go after that inventory of Wyatt's goods before George Wyatt takes it. They're hoping to find a clue to the relic. And after the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 32, Bedford House, in which Philomena and Constance become Ned, and Blackjack is fooled. Why did Rutland not come? Philomena might have to wait for the tide, or for a fresh horse to be brought. But all Rutland had to do was put one fine leather-booted foot in front of the other and walk five minutes. Cecil House was the closest mansion to Bedford House. Did he think to tease her? Pooh, was he returning to his fickle ways? These last weeks, with Thomas in a way... Rutland had become someone who Constance counted on as considering her interest, a friendly presence, if not a friend. But where was he now? She paced the room again. Elan came in, her face in a book. Bon matin, Constance. Look at you, pacing the room, dressed for the out-of-doors. You make me tired. And the princess herself has been up and out of the house since dawn. Ay, me, the endless bustle. Are you waiting for that lover with the hair? Is he going to charge through the window and clasp you to his bosom so early in the morning? Elan's tone became confidential. I hope the princess has gifted you with the book. She said the word in two syllables and faced the title of what she herself was reading. De Matera Medica, towards Constance. An unwanted baby makes an unwanted bride. Lovers, 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 Constance thought. Elan's lover was old, and she had heard that old men sometimes had lost the froth of the draft. But at least he would try. She herself had not read more of Cecilia's ribbon-marked present. She had practically forgotten it. If Charles were her amante, the prevention would take care of itself. Oh, thank the heavens. Philomena was here, and with a big smile on her face. Where on God's earth was Rutland? Constance lacked the patience to wait, and decided she and Philomena should walk across the way to Cecil House and see if that layabout was still asleep. 
It was freezing cold again, and she and Philomena took turns holding each other up over the icy patches. Just short of the house, Constance caught sight of Honeywood and asked if he would not send Rutland out. Instead, he regaled herself and Philomena with the details of a prank that left the great Lord Cecil's arse hard on the floor and knees folded to his chest after he fell through the seat of a chair. That man could not bear a joke or disrespect, and hence Rutland was not to leave and must translate and write out three perfect copies of Cicero's in Greek, Hebrew, and French. Oxford, as usual, had avoided punishment by being the tale-bearer. Finished with his own tale, Honeywood signaled around the back of Cecil House, where he bleated like a lamb. In seconds, a casement opened. Rutland leaned out, and with a glance to Constance, seemed to shrink in shame. Honeywood called out, Jump out, sir, and be mannerly! Nay, I must pretend contrition to my Lord Cecil. Honeywood, off with you. I would speak to these two. It is all ruined, Constance bellowed up at him. It was a relief to express her frustration, and the effort was making her warmer, so she did it again. It is all ruined. We will never gain entry without you. It is a misery to be here. How could I have been such a fool, Rutland lamented. Yet take heart. I have an idea. I can give you my seal, and then you can pass yourself off as my servants. A fine stretch, called Philomena. But I think as low as we are, we will be seen to be ourselves and not your servants, sir. Oh, today you take every word I say as a cruelty, he shouted back. Considering again, Constance thought of the Margrave and Cecilia and their games. They often went incognito into town. She turned to Philomena. The princess has many forms of fancy dress. What if we disguise ourselves? As Cleopatra and Lady Godiva? asked Philomena, confused. No, Princess Cecilia and the Margrave often dress as the twins, Castor and Pollux. The clothes are of two well-turned-out youths. Hose, breeches, doublets, fur jerkins, shoes, and hats with plumes. The Margrave is taller than you, Philomena, but he is slender. These will serve. Why, yelled Rutland, do you whisper? You have banned yourself, sir, returned Constance. Throw down the seal, and we will have our adventure without you. Dejected, Rutland did as asked, and then closed himself back up in his room with immortal Cicero. Constance led Philomena back to Bedford House and through the rooms, and the Swedish ladies, sniffing intrigue, following apace. An early morning meeting with a lover? asked Elin. Constance was about to protest when Philomena hailed the idea. Indeed, we must sneak and not be seen. We thought to dress as boys. Will you help us, ladies? Christina, Gabriel's daughter, was jumping up and down. You will look so handsome. How I wish I could greet my own eagle in such attire. Male man's, you will be stiff. Brigitte held up her arm and flexed it to show muscle. Philomena looked at Constance, bemused, and offered... Upright? Constance discovered the word Brigitte had attempted was stout. Elin threw open the lid to Princess Cecilia's costumes. She grabbed a Grecian-styled gown and held it up to her body. Does not a lover adore it when you dress as a muse? Philomena noted the waist. Such silk worn for but a moment. A little extra enticement. Did all these Swedish ladies play such games? What a relief not to be of such a strange national character. Several were chattering and holding breeches up to her, and she saw that Constance was enjoying herself, so why not join in? Philomena loved a masquerade. At what other time would she ever dress as a youth? Dorodai took up a codpiece and tried, between fits of wild laughter, to secure it on Philomena. Elizabeth had bedecked herself in the famous Cleopatra attire and was twisting her arm as if it were a snake. Brigitte appeared holding two wigs, one red and the other a tawny brown. Philomena chose the brown. She had seen enough of red hair. The jacket was a bit large, and belted her figure still showed. 
The desired illusion has not been got, Dorodai said, and then suggested some paunch. She called for a groom to bring her a sack full of hay from the stable, and began making a large round belly, which she shoved into the jacket. It was itchy against Philomena's skin, but the results were good. She looks to be one of those fat boys who has a tiny head, Elin laughed. While our Constance is fit to be a prince's dear, a little too dear, young page. Philomena turned to see a blushing Constance. The strange attire rather suited her. Should we call you Connor? asked Elin. Not so Irish, if you please, Constance said. Before you say more, I will be Ned. Ned is the simplest. Mistress Philomena's little chin and such cheekbones, Dorodai said. Let us crack a walnut and put a shell in each cheek. It will puff them out and make the body and head harmonize. Philomena did not want to put the nuts in her cheeks, but she complied. Let us call her Squire Squirrel, Dorodai decided. No, she too will be Ned. Ned suits for all men, Constance insisted. Stepping across the threshold of Bedford House to the outdoors, Constance felt a mixture of exhilaration. How easy it was to walk without holding up skirts. And mortification. How naked her legs were. Even her travel cape was scanty and did not reach past her knees. She took it off and began wrapping it around her waist in an effort to cover her cold limbs. You are calling attention to yourself, Constance. I would avoid a night in the Compta. Such will be our punishment should we be caught, Philomena said, the nutshells in her cheeks giving her voice a slurred quality, as if she were drunk. I am sorry, but I'm quite frozen. I wish you could wear my cloak, but it would be too womanish. Constance looked longingly at the bundle Philomena had made up of her clothes, thinking of the warmth of full-length ermine. As they approached a ferryman at the bottom of the water stairs, a giant in Cecil's livery shoved Constance. Move aside, boy. Lady Anne Bacon, flanked by four attendants, came mincing down the steps. The giant made a great show of helping Lady Anne into the boat. Constance looked at the giant's legs. Were they as cold as hers, or did their hugeness keep them warm? The boat pushed off, and on his way back up, the giant growled at her. The ice-knife wind. How she missed her wonderfully warm shift, corset, and petticoat. Her comforting stomacher, kirtle, underskirt, overskirt, velvet sleeves, rough hose, and her fur hat. How did men survive the winter with so little on? Have you the fare, gents? A waterman asked. Philomena gave a convincingly boyish nod and maneuvered alongside the steps. It dawned on Constance. This waterman would not be extending his hand to two boys. She thrust out her foot and clambered aboard. Philomena tripped over her a bit as she followed. Constance wondered at their situation. Masters Ned and Ned. Pages with wet boots. Constance eyed the curved back man as he rode and hummed to himself. A flask under his thigh and a depressing-looking bit of meat and bread on the bench next to him. She had never felt free to stare at a ferryman so closely. Something that looked like a book wrapped in a cloth was there as well. Could this man read? Had he been to a petty school? Had he sons? Sons who would some day be steering this same vessel? What might your cloth hold, sir? She asked, trying out her boy voice. He stopped his hum. Tis the almanac. Constance's curiosity was not satisfied. She saw Philomena was making a kind of lip-buttoning gesture at her, but she ignored it. And do you read the stars with it, the tides? She felt very clever to have thought of asking about the tides. That is the worth of the almanac, but not its greatest. I tell you, lad, it speaks of when the ghosts may walk the river. I will not row on those days. Shooting under the London Bridge many a man and woman drown. Their ghosts stuck there in the water's tumult. 
Some of your nobles will not even go down, but walk around instead. This man was not stupid. Philomena touched Constance's arm. They were nearing the Westminster stairs. A thick rope dropped into Constance's lap, momentarily perplexed. She understood it was her role to toss the great nasty thing to the man on the dock, and using all her strength, she flung it. Sadly, the rope went less than halfway and landed with a splat into the water. Philomena whispered in her slurring voice, It is a day for unseen challenges, and then piped up, We are no watermen, but pages to the Earl of Rutland. The man crouched over and dragged up the rope. Fortunate pups. Moving with the crowd toward Westminster Hall, Constance found it altogether too large, a city in itself. She had visited for some tedious court event that did not even have the levity of a spelling pig. But how to get in now? Many towers and gateways were open, but knots of merchants or gentry blocking them indicated that no lowly page dare approach. A few yards on, a crowd of young men, many in livery, jostling and yelling, Constance pointed. Considering the affability of the group, might unfamiliar faces be suspect? Philomena moved to the entryway. There are so few of you gentry, you think every face recognisable, but it is not so. Rustic youth constantly flood into London, looking to make their way. We will not be noticed. Constance was carried along into the high-ceilinged hall by the throng whose talk was all of expenses and the poor sense of masters. A figure paced the crowd. Philomena! Is that blackjack? Philomena stepped around to find a view. That jaw, that eye. A fine trauma it will be if he recognizes me. He will not, I assure you. No, because I'm a fat brownish boy with a small head and a slurry voice. Yet, Philomena thought, if he loved her as he professed, he would see through the ruse, recognize her gaze. That is what always happened in stories. She wanted to test him in this silly manner, but her good sense and Constance's pulling dragged her away. Oh, you! Where is your livery? Sounds, Constance thought, jumping in front of Philomena and willing herself to meet Blackjack's glare. We spoiled it, sir, and our master, the Earl of Rutland, is too economical to supply new. Blackjack puffed up. Your lord is wise, you impudent snot-nose. From the size of your dull pate, I can see God did not see fit to provide you with sense enough to keep clean. And your companion, look at his head, an abomination. Too small to hold more than the food he crams into his mouth. It will spill from his ears. And his girth, there is not enough cloth in England to cover it. What's your name, you hairless shit? Ned, sir. Constance made a little bow. She knew boy manners. Your mother had nothing but the sense to name you Ned. And Master Nutpate? Constance answered for Philomena. His name is Ned too. Judas me, boy, and I will fricassee your mouse cock. A giggle escaped Philomena. She covered it with a cough. This arrogance, it was so appealing. She thought her blackjack well appointed to his task. Little had she known that he had such a ready mouth for insults. Sir, his name is Ned, Constance protested. I swear on my mother's honour. Philomena's down-tilted head disappeared between her shoulders. Constance feared Blackjack would grab Philomena and shake her for a good look. Instead, his fist flew out and thumped Constance herself in her chest. Oof! Constance bit her lip to balance the pain and stood her ground. Blackjack was so strange. Will you make a man? Blackjack guffawed. You might be a large one of six years. Should you be called to use the sword, the pointed end should go to the other man. For your master's sake, I will let you pass. If you can walk without a fall. Constance pulled Philomena away. Entering the deafening volume of the great hall with stalls upon stalls of food, books, saddles, armor, anything that could be bought and sold, courtiers abounded. Constance had not envisioned this. Philomena whispered, Fie on it. Is that George Wyatt, the pieman's? 
We must run, Constance urged. Make haste, Philomena. There is not time. He inhales that pie. He will be on our heels and at the door of the Master of Rolls before we finish asking. He must be delayed. Listen, I will tell you how, Constance. I will go to him and tell him Rackland has requested his company at this very moment. What purpose will you give, Philomena? Pages never know, and George Wyatt is in love with your friend's rank. He will go. Will he be admitted to see Rutland? We will be found out. Rutland will play along. He's ever up for a ploy. We only need time to read the inventory, then we will leave it for George, and he will never know the difference. Philomena threw herself into the artery of market-goers that flowed against her, lumbering with her great hay girth. She feared she would not reach her target before he wiped the last bit of meat from his mouth. "'My lord,' Philomena called. "'Sir, sir, I must speak with you. "'My master, the Earl of Rattlin, recommends his love to your lordship.' George dabbed the napkin at the corner of his mouth, relishing the word lordship, as Philomena foresaw. "'The Earl bade me run to you, sir. "'He said he must have your company at Cecil House.' Indeed? Well, my round lad, round is a piss-pot. I will commend you to him. You have outstripped yourself. I have business here. Then I will go directly, said George. What a pale imitation of Blackjack's high-born swagger, Philomena thought. Pardon me, my lord. The Earl entreats that you come at once. He will brook no delay. I saw him as I left. What melancholy! As I have said, he bade me run as fast as I could to retrieve you. My lord, what an impression you have made on my master, and what kindness would you show to heed his want? Philomena was not entirely sure her slurring words made sense, so she punctuated them with a beseeching smile. George responded with a condescending farthing. So cheap. She would never give such a poor tip. But she bowed deeply. I shall go at once if I must. George glowed as he sauntered off, and Philomena returned to Constance, who was already waiting in the chamber of the Master of the Rolls. Several fellows were copying and adding, but none looked up from their work. They will not call us, Constance told Philomena. It is a lot of pages to be ignored. We will give ourselves away if we are forceful. Let us wait. Constance rubbed her legs together to keep warm. The clerks worked. Minutes went by. Seized by impatience, Constance found her feet and planted herself before the youngest of the clerks. My master, the Earl of Rutland, expects us within the hour. The clerk raised his eyes. Philomena stuck out the seal in a small pouch. A bribe. Constance blessed her friend's acuity. The clerk put up his hands. Why haste? You are keen servants. Most would rather sit the afternoon away. He opened the pouch with an air of indifference and pulled out a coin, which he bit. Sir, we would not fool a man of your quality with light gold, Philomena reassured. The clerk ignored her, biting each coin, then placing it in his own purse. His task completed, he displayed his black teeth and mossy tonsils with an enormous yawn and raised his quill with a movement so torturously slow, Constance was not sure he moved at all. Eventually, the quill met the ink pot. He stood. Constance thought she might kill him herself. She was disguised, and no one would miss this man. Finally, he disappeared down the hallway. Do you think he will return? Constance asked ruefully. Not before hell freezes over, replied Philomena. Are you in misery? Constance pulled a bit of errant hay from Philomena's buttonhole. I could not even whisper to you where all this hay has got to, and I am in great fear of swallowing these nuts. What a brush with your blackjack. I never thought to see him as a guard or swagger. What a merry outing. 
Will you be like the Princess Cecilia, Philomena, always looking for a costume? Constance laughed, and then lowered her voice to sound like a boy chortling. Shut your ragged mouth, yelled a servant who had been asleep in the corner. The clerk returned empty-handed and wiggled into a comfortable position. If you please, sir, did you find the inventory of the Wyatt family? Constance inquired. I have requested it from the Pell office. I did you find service. I went outside without my cloak, the clerk yawned. That is my duty, and I have done. Do you know how long it may take, sir? Constance asked. I do not. Ambling into the chamber, a page, who had taken at least an hour to make an appearance, tossed a heavy parchment down in front of the clerk. Constance had to hold on to the bench to keep herself from rushing over. It was torturous to watch the clerk finish his writing with a flourish, arrange his sleeves, and then, with a malicious meticulousness, unroll the papers, examine them, and roll them back up. He dipped his quill again. Sir, these papers, might they be what we have waited for? Constance pressed. Perhaps, the clerk muttered. To Constance's horror, Philomena slid the clerk an undeserved coin and unrolled the scroll. Constance joined her at the desk, reading the words aloud. An inventory of holdings forfeited to the crown by the traitor Sir Thomas Wyatt the Younger in the year of our Lord, 1554. The castle at Allington, with its lands, Boxley Abbey and lands, Aylesford Priory, the manors of East and West Farley, property of the Hundred of Who, the manor of Bicknor, Swanton Court, properties in Borden, lands in Chalk, the manor of Poole in Southfleet, the manor of Maidstone and other properties of the town, the manor of Shales Court, "'Tis the good, sir, not the lands that we need,' Constance told the clerk. "'It is what our Lord Rutland demands.' "'Let him demand after I dine,' the clerk turned and called for his cloak. "'Sir, we will go to the stocks due to late arrival for our master,' Philomena said, but the clerk only let out a loud belch. "'Indeed, why should such a man as you look out for us, but she hear what we have for you?' Philomena pulled the buckles off her shoes. Constance added, "'I entreat you, take these small things so that we may have the inventory in quick time.' The clerk swept payment into his purse, and a boy was dispatched to the Pell office again. More waiting, then a stream of servants weighed down by three or four scrolls staggered in. They unceremoniously dumped the scrolls onto the floor. You have them now, said the clerk. He was such an ass, Constance thought, as she struggled to pick up two of the scrolls. There's nothing for it but to take this away with us. It will take hours to read them, Philomena decided. But it risks discovery, Constance muttered. George Wyatt will never know. We will return them. Confusion and misplacement are by the by at Westminster. George is a toad, but I would not add to his family's misery. Nor I. Wait here, Constance. I will hire a cart. I have my clothes. If I change my shoes and stockings, my cloak will cover the rest of this hair-brained attire. Dragging the scrolls to the door, Constance prayed Philomena would be back before George Wyatt appeared. Happily the man, a cart, and Philomena, resembling and sounding something close to the woman of means she was, with a long cloak over her boy clothes, her man's boots changed back to her own shoes, arrived at the door. Constance threatened the clerk with the wrath of a noble should Rutland's name be connected to the inventory and proceeded out to meet the conveyance. Philomena took the seat while the driver loaded the scrolls, and then walked by the mule, leaving Constance to play the page atop the cargo. The position might have been diverting, but the heavy rolls slid about knocking her, and besides the constant cold, she was bothered by imagining George Wyatt at every turn. Was he behind the curtain of a litter, or on horseback riding hard to overtake them? The inn was expectedly bustling. Constance climbed off the heap to follow Philomena, noting other servants casting disparaging looks her way. 
Her confusion gave way to comprehension. Her hands were empty, and as a page boy, this was unacceptable. She hauled a roll out of the cart. I find myself wishing Wyatt had been a poor man, with perhaps only a locket to his name. Constance said quietly to Philomena as they began down the hall, to a room where Constance would transform back into a girl. Hey, hoy, Philomena! Blackjack rang out before Constance had time to even doff her coat. Fie, this man was everywhere! What rotten fortune that he had finished with his duties and returned so quickly! His eyes were for Philomena. Constance, as a mere page, might go unnoticed. Philomena, what business do you have with this cur? He cuffed Constance on the ear. She wanted to like him for her friend's sake, but he was so hitting and insulting, and present at the most inconvenient times, such as now. Where is your fellow, the fat Ned? he asked Constance. I have some Malmsey you must try, Blackjack. Philomena took his hand. Let me order it for you while I change my gown. Fetch your master, boy. I would drink with him. Blackjack commanded Constance. Philomena blinked. She looked to Constance. My Lord Rutland is not here, sir. He sent me to inquire after a suite of rooms. Constance's voice wavered with the lie. Listen to that warble. I scared the piss out of this tyke at Westminster. Come, lad, have a drink in your master's honour. He does not drink, Blackjack. He is scrupulous, Philomena interjected. Then his education will take all afternoon. First a bottle of spirits, then to the playhouse, bear baiting, and a punk to round out the drinking, Philomena protested. The Earl will not like it, Blackjack. You are wrong, my sweet. The Earl will be happy for his page's conversion. Off with you, Philomena. Making a hunting hound out of a puppy is man's work. It pained Philomena, but she knew any keen interest in the page would make Blackjack's suspicion rise. She dared not even look at Constance. Philomena consoled herself that Constance would find a way to shake off Blackjack. At least he had not marked her own bulky cloak. All would be undone if he saw the fat page's clothes that lay underneath. Constance found herself sitting with a large tankard at her elbow. The weight of Blackjack's arm was heavy on her shoulders. He peered at her skin. Sarah, you have not a hair of a beard. Would you honour me with a bit of yours, sir? She said, feeling that his face was entirely too close to hers. Tell me, lad, has your master, my Lord Rutland, received a new sword? Drink up. There's more if you desire it. How like a sheep you look, begat by a coward. Drink! Constance took a swig. The strength of the wine set a fire behind her eyes. Sir, I have not seen a new sword, though I wish to see such a thing. I commissioned my weapon long before your master, but as the Queen's ward, he will get his first. Damn him! Constance felt very witty. Sir, I would I had a big sword. Ha ha ha, lad! Blackjack raised his cup for a toast. He downed it. Drink up! We must free our minds. The noise of the city will addle the brain. Good. Now a second to our fair Mistress Arundel, and one to Her Majesty, and one to a worthy war. Hey there, refill these tankards, you dog, and every man in the room. Let him drink with me. Long live the Queen! Philomena threw her costume to the floor, urging, cajoling, begging Marianne to lace, lace, lace. But by the time she was fit to leave her chamber and run back to the drinking room, Constance was bent over a bucket, men pounding her good-humouredly. At least, Philomena thought, these malmsey-eyed merrymakers took no notice that a thick curl had fallen out of Constance's boy wig. Even Blackjack looked on benignly. Philomena gestured to the tower to help Constance up. Leave him, Mina, Blackjack insisted. The wee thing could not hold his sack. He should sleep it off on the floor. I shall take no advice from you, Hobgoblin. 
You will shame him if you caught him home. Leave him. He's becoming a man. Philomena ignored Blackjack and the tower picked Constance up as if she were a bedraggled rag doll. Philomena called for a damp cloth and wiped Constance's slobbery mouth and dispatched her to the servants' quarters. I'm jealous enough to roar. Wipe my mouth, Blackjack said. You, sir, are drunk and you stink. What a relief to be drunk. I will confess everything to you, my Philomena. Do not... Philomena insisted. Do not trust me so, sir. Go to the playhouse. Blackjack rolled out with his rowdy compatriots. A note was issued to Bedford House. Mistress Stoner had been caught in the rain and as a precaution would pass the night at the inn. Would her grace the Princess Cecilia be so kind as to send new clothes? After the inn was quiet, Philomena herself half-dragged, half-carried her inebriated friend to a decent room. Thank goodness for Constance's small stature. What's an Elizabethan story without a gentlewoman dressing as a boy and having a bit of an adventure? A hundred percent. Of course, we were inspired by all the wonderful 16th and 17th century plots of women dressing as men to be able to do something that, as women, they couldn't possibly do. There were so many prohibitions against women dressing in men's clothes in this period, socially but also legally, and there were harsh punishments. But I still think there must have been a number of women who dressed as men, at least sometimes, because either they were inclined, they were trans, or because men's clothes afforded women so much more freedom. Female clothing was so incredibly impractical and so constraining. I mean, a stomacher squeezing you, layers of skirts you had to haul around. I mean, they must have really weighed you down and they could get caught in things if you moved too fast. They were actually sort of dangerous. It's almost inconceivable how uncomfortable women must have been almost 100% of the time. I wonder about poor women. They had fewer pieces of clothing to contend with. But I also wonder if they were busy, if they were farming, if they just worked in their shifts. I mean, they probably did. And possibly even they dressed in men's clothes if their farms were remote enough because it was just so much easier to move around in men's clothes. Physically, sure, but also in society, it was just much easier to be in men's clothes. You could be admitted into places that you were prohibited from Otherwise, you attracted less notice if you were traveling around the city by yourself. Philomena and Constance dress as boys for practical reasons, to get the inventory. But it also allows them greater freedom that they couldn't have as women. And Shakespeare, of course, comes to mind. Because, you know, when Portia dresses as a male lawyer to try a case in The Merchant of Venice, Viola passing herself off as a page. You know, I wonder if women dressing as men on stage was a reflection of something that people knew was happening in reality as well. It may be. I mean, it was dangerous and it was illegal, but it was an anonymous age compared to ours. No one was going to ask you for a picture ID. And I think it was easier to pass yourself off as someone else, at least temporarily. That's true. And I think it was just so dark everywhere. It's true. It's true. And it's a darkness we can't really imagine anymore. No, it's so much easier to blend in without electric lights and street lamps and flashlights revealing who you really are. I think it was probably just easier to get away with things. Not to mention security cameras. But whatever was or was not happening in the real world, entertainment in this period was 
full of cross-dressing. And as a plot device, it predated Shakespeare by decades. As far as we could research, the first play where women dressed as men was Sir Clyman and Sir Climides, which was written in 1570. And this play might have been the basis for As You Like It. It is about a girl who dresses as a boy and takes refuge in a forest, just like Rosalind does. So that play wasn't performed until 1599, but there was another cross-dressing comedy which was performed at court, Galatea, and it was written by John Lilly. And the plot is super complicated. So it takes place in Lincolnshire, but everyone has Greek names, and it's full of gods and goddesses who happen to live in north of England. <laughs> it's strange, but the Tudors love to mix up the ancient world and their own culture. So it's it's not terribly surprising. No, it's not surprising. But I have not read the whole play. It's actually quite hard to get hold of. But there are two girls who dress as boys to escape being sacrificed to Neptune. Sacrifice is not funny. No, no. Not when Sophocles does it in Iphigenia. But Galatea is supposed to be a laugh riot. So I guess they people weren't put off by the sacrifice plot point. Anyway, the girls as boys, they also hide out in a forest and they fall in love with each other, thinking the other is male. So at the end, you know, the gods intervene and sort it all out by the 16th century standard. Meaning everyone is back to the heterosexual norm. Of course, we have much broader ideas now, but that would have represented the quote, you know, proper order in the 16th century. For the Tudors, defying gender norms represented a kind of chaos. You know, just as defying class roles also represented chaos. But there were celebrations where this was sort of allowed to happen, and it was allowed to happen on stage, right? And in these celebrations, the classes were turned upside down. So, for example, the Lord and Lady of Misrule were, were peasants or commoners who for a short time on Twelfth Night switched places with the aristocracy. And there was, you know, tremendous freedom and hilarity. And at the end of that night, all improprieties, anything anyone said and did was forgiven, but everything had to go back to what was considered the natural, divinely ordained order. These plots with all the mixing up the sexes was in the same spirit of a dangerous freedom that could be enjoyed as little titillating fun that had to be restored to order in the end. The audience loved it. Queen Elizabeth must have as well, because she had Galatea performed at court for New Year's Eve's festivals in 1588, which is really interesting because most scholars think Shakespeare wrote his comedy to Gentlemen of Verona in 1589 or 90, in which the main female character, Julia, dresses as a boy to go after her cheating boyfriend. Right, so scholars think Shakespeare probably heard about the success of Galatea, read it himself, or perhaps even saw it, and it inspired him to use this girl-as-a-boy device for his first foray into comedy with Two Gentlemen of Verona. Maybe. And in the course of the 16th and early 17th century, English audiences became very used to boys playing girls who were dressed as boys, which was very meta. Right. So 
Obviously, you know, as most people know, there were no women actors on the London stages until the 1660s under the reign of Charles II. And you specify London because it's hard to know for sure if women did or did not act in strolling players groups in the English countryside. Yes, because what went on in the English countryside stayed in the English countryside. (laughs) And it wasn't as if women were not allowed to perform in London at all. They were. Women went on stage as dancers and singers and even acrobats. And they performed often in the nude or at least topless. So seeing women's bodies would not have been a shock on a London stage. And women at court took part in masks and pantomimes. They danced, they sang. And again, they sometimes wore quite skimpy outfits. The real shock, the thing that could not be allowed apparently, was to hear a woman speak, speak a line on stage. I mean, it seems arbitrary and unfair. I know, it wasn't women's bodies that bothered the gatekeepers of the English stage. It was their voices. That's very, very meta. I know. I mean, really, it it reinforces this idea that women were to look at, not to listen to. It's as if speaking and acting would allow women a kind of dignity on stage that would be too offensive Mm -hmm. for people to stand. So they were not allowed, either at court or on stage, to take speaking roles. And I've always been told that that was because there was a law, an actual law on the books against women acting. But in fact, it seems that there was never a specific law that was passed about women being on the stage. It was a convention. So I always thought there was an actual law. Yeah. And but that's apparently just, there was not. Yeah, that's just not the case. And the other thing that you hear is that the church banned women from the stage. But that also does not seem to be true because women acted in very religious countries such as Spain and France. And historians know this because of contemporary accounts. In 1548, an Italian troupe went to France to perform for Catherine de' Medici, and the female parts were played Mm -hmm. by women. And in Don Quixote, which was written in 1605, there is a playing company run by a husband and wife, and the wife is recorded as acting in the plays. Right, so clearly this went on. When you kind of do a rudimentary study of the English theater, a lot uh, is made of the church's supposed prohibition on women acting on stage, but which isn't really clearly made. But in fact, the whole profession was damned by the church. Damned to hell. Damned to hell, not just women who acted. Professional actors, you know, male actors, all of them at this time, were prohibited from taking the sacrament unless they gave up their profession. So it wasn't like the church was saying we will allow acting but just not women on stage. They didn't want any of it. It's just crazy. And that prohibition, the prohibition lasted officially until the 18th century. So the church really clung to this idea. And I bet a lot of actors took communion anyway. Because, you know, oh, humans, we love to make rules, impose them on others, and then we break them. Yeah, but I mean, the point we're making is that it wasn't that the church specifically banned women on stage. They said that acting in general was damned. So 
the, this idea that you hear all the time that the church disapproved of women being on stage is kind of nonsensical because the church disapproved of anybody being on stage. Nevertheless, the English theater upheld this idea of no women on the stage even as actors defied other prohibitions that the church made, you know, against their entire profession. So it's just, it, it's actually a much complicated issue than just women were banned. It, it wasn't, it's much more subtle than that. It's much more insidious, actually. Yes, because there was a law against cross-dressing of any kind. Right. So, on stage or off. Yes. yes. So men dressing as women was technically more illegal than women acting. Because right. It women was a acting law. Was not illegal. Right. So that was actually a law yes. on the law books. But women acting was not a law on the law books. Whatever you've heard in the past, that just is not true. And you know, there's clear prohibitions in religion about cross dressing. In the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, it says, A man's item shall not be on a woman, and a man shall not wear a woman's garment. Whoever does such a thing is an abhorrence. So, and the law against women dressing as men was enforced as shown in the legal records. Right, even as men were dressing as women on stage. Yes, because in 1569, a woman dressed as a servant to accompany her husband to war. And after she was caught, she was whipped publicly and sent to Bridewell for dressing as his servant. I just find that... No, even while a woman dressing as a servant to go to war with her husband sounds exactly like the plot of a 16th century comedy. It does, it does. <laughs> in these plays, of course, no one ever gets in trouble for it. But right. actually, if a woman did that off stage, she'd go to prison. And, you know, that was terrible. You know, the law took women dressing as men as a really serious offense. And apparently dressing in men's clothing was a popular practice among prostitutes. And most of the prostitutes, when they were arrested, they were charged with defying the dress code, not with prostitution. And oh, well. on the stage, somehow it was less of an abhorrence to have the men dress as women than to have women act, which was not <laughs> illegal. No. It's just crazy. <laughs> I know. And it's interesting. And, you know, again, having men take the women's part was not the norm in the rest of Europe. I mean, we, as we've said, you know, there are accounts of, of women actors in the rest of Europe, in religious, super religious countries. So I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it would take a lot of, a lot of research and a lot of thinking about it. But you know, I sometimes wonder if it simply had something to do with the education system in England. Oh, uh, so in what way? Well, I mean, you know, schools were exclusively for boys after a certain age. And doing plays was part of the curriculum of a 16th century grammar school. Because they would do morality plays to teach ethics and they would put on the works of classical playwrights like Terence to improve their Latin. So the theater was integrated into the idea of intellectual education. And there were no girls to take the women's parts in these plays, of course, because there were no girls in the schools. So the boys would dress as women. And, it, it, you know, it actually made me laugh because I read that parents would 
be invited to come and see these performances in the plays, oh. the school play. <laughs> so parents have been having to sit through school plays <laughs> yeah, the performance. for 500 yeah. years. I mean, it's funny to think of t- Tudor parents nudging each other when their son comes on stage and starts gushing about how well he speaks the speech. But, you know, little Johnny Haywood <laughs> couldn't get his lines out. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, Ben is now. And doing theater was not only in the grammar schools. I mean, there were so many performances at the universities and plays that originated at the Inns of Court. And we've talked about uh, the Inns of Court in prior episodes about how they were essentially law schools. And of course, there were only male students. So they would also have had to play the women's parts. They certainly didn't call in women to play those parts. So you're suggesting it's a convention that the boys got used to and once they became playwrights and audience members audience members it's themselves it's just what they were used to it became part of the professional stage yeah i mean i guess audiences the the parents who came to see the school plays they were accustomed to it and maybe it just became outrageous to imagine women playing those parts and maybe the guys had a great time dressing up as women and acting the parts of women. And maybe they didn't want to give up those parts. I mean, some of the parts are very good. Mm-hmm. And maybe they just didn't want to share. They didn't want women to have that. And it was considered a very intellectual pursuit in England. So the perhaps they thought women were up to the intellectual pursuit of theater. Well, yeah. I mean, in the way that they used it for education in terms of, you know, improving Latin, learning morality, you know, even then, so then when, you know, when they segued into a professional theater, they, they kind of didn't want to give up the fun they were having or the parts they were playing. And they made up a lot of reasons why they should get to keep the privilege for themselves. Then is now. No, I mean, absolutely. Gatekeepers always make up dumb reasons why other people can't do things. Philomena and Constance are certainly having fun in this chapter, dressing as lads, but it has a practical purpose. Masquerading as boys gives them a freedom to get into Westminster without notice. Right, to get to the inventory of the Wyatt goods, which, as we've said before, was seized by Mary I when Thomas the Younger was executed for leading the rebellion. Westminster was an entirely male realm the administrative center of the English government from the 12th century on, and home to the royal courts of justice. And not a place that Philomena and Constance would have been welcome as women. Westminster was the seat of the royal courts of justice in this period, but before the 12th century, the seat of government was wherever the monarch happened to be at the time, because the monarch would be accompanied by their clerks by parchment and seal, and that constituted the royal court. Mm. But as the bureaucracy grew, the seat of government needed to be located in one place because there were documents and and things that needed to sort of stay in one place and couldn't be carried around with the monarch all the time. And Westminster has been the site of the Houses of Parliament since the medieval period. The old palace of Westminster was built in the 11th century near the Abbey, which was established in 960. 
Edward, a long time ago. <laughs> it was a long time ago. <laughs> Edward the Confessor was buried there in 1060, six years before the big date, 1066. And speaking of 1066, William the Conqueror, though he was Norman, was considered the first English monarch to be crowned there at Westminster Abbey. And of course, that tradition has lasted until now. So you can see a wonderful video from the 50s of Queen Elizabeth II being crowned in Westminster Abbey. It was called an abbey because it was an abbey. It housed a community of Benedictine monks. But during Henry VIII's Reformation, the Benedictine monks were, of course, expelled. Westminster Abbey technically became Westminster Cathedral. That's interesting. I don't think I've ever heard it referred to as Westminster Cathedral. Right, but technically it is because it's a Church of London establishment, and there's not mm. any, it's not in a class, it's not an ecclesiastical ha- house anymore. There's no brothers there. And it's, it's, it's interesting. And what's known as the Old Palace of Westminster also dated from the 11th century. And it was the main residence of the English monarchy until the royal apartments burnt to the ground in 1512. During the reign of Henry VIII. Right. So he took the throne in 1509, so early on in his reign. But to, remit, to replace Westminster Palace, Henry built this new Palace of Whitehall, where so much of the action of our story takes place. So it's, it's funny to think that in Elizabeth's time, Whitehall was a relatively new building. You know, maybe people thought, oh, this new architecture. <laughs> I hate it so much, you know, or they liked it because it was, it was new, you know, and spanky. But it wasn't, I don't know, you just have to remember that sometimes when you're thinking about the way people interacted with these spaces, that some of them, for them, were unfamiliar and new and modern. Yes, you know? yeah. And then... It was also destroyed by fire. Yeah, Whitehall was. Yeah, in 1698. And then what remained of the old buildings of Westminster burnt down in the 19th century. So, you know, I mean, much of the Abbey survived, but the Houses of Parliament were rebuilt in 1840 in what we think of as the quintessential Houses of Parliament. Mm -hmm. That's what we envision when we see it now. And those buildings are actually in a Gothic revival style there actually from the 19th century. And that's how London got Big Ben. Right. Big Ben was part of that. All these fires in such historically important places. In terms of Whitehall, what an incredible loss. It is. I read one historian who said that it was nothing short of a miracle that with all the fires in and around Westminster, they still have something like 33 miles Mm. of legal records from the medieval and early modern period that survived. Right. So, I mean... How many records were there if 33 miles survive? It's crazy. And I remember you telling me once, and we always laugh about this, you read an article in a paper that lamented that it was too bad that the English didn't keep more records before the 17th century. It was crazy. They didn't fact check that. No. The English loved keeping records and taking inventories. I mean, look at the Doomsday Book, compiled in 1086 by William the Conqueror. It's a survey of all of the entire country, including everything he had gained in winning the Battle of Hastings. That's why he made the Doomsday Book, because he wanted to see what he got in this battle, what he was now king of. And William was Norman. I mean, he was French, not English, but but still, I mean... Are you blaming the bureaucracy on, on the French? The French? <laughs> no, I think the English caught up pretty fast. 
he started the practice of keeping legal records and it was the 11th century time to get on it yeah <laughs> the inventory that i would really love to like have in my hands is the inventory of all the possessions of henry the eighth that was made in 1547 you know right after he died it has something like 17,800 items on it a itemized list of everything that the crown owned. I mean, can you imagine the objects that were on there? It would also be kind of sad because you'd see what had been lost and some of it in the fire in Whitehall. I would also be curious to read the inventory of Robert Dudley's Kenilworth Castle that was taken in 1578. I think it might reveal, I don't want to say more common man things, but just yeah, I wouldn't say Dudley was exactly the <laughs> typical common man. I think the inventories of common man things had like three things on it. Yeah, yeah, we I talked didn't. about that in previous episodes. Just how how the idea of ownership of anything was like huge. was yeah, it was a spoon. A spoon would have been on your inventory. And I would also like to handle, you know, and to be able to look through the the inventory that Henry had done in the 1530s after the dissolution of the monasteries you know and he had that done to see all these incredible goodies he'd gained you know smashing up the churches and the and the monastic houses can you imagine being one of the government officials who went around the country detailing all the treasures from the ruined monasteries as the sad former monks look at you with hate in their yeah. eyes and the nuns it just just hating on you as you poked around their prized objects and, you know, claimed them for the king. Right, and the former monks and nuns that still were living after yes. the Reformation that That's Henry true. hadn't killed. And he made a fortune from the Reformation. And, you know, he squandered it all because by the time he left the throne to Edward, he pretty much bankrupted the country. But these legal records... From as far back as the 1200s, they were carefully preserved at Westminster. And that was the job of the master of the rolls. Right. So-called because the legal documents continued to be kept on scrolls of parchment or vellum rolls throughout the 18th century because it, it was just so much easier to make these long, long lists of things on a roll and also... They tended to not be on both sides of the paper. They were on one side of the paper, so you could unroll it like this and see the whole thing. So there's still a master of the rules in England. But he's not dealing with rules anymore. No, but now the master of the rules is the president of the Court of Appeals, the highest judge in the land after the Lord Chief Justice. No mistress of the rules? Not yet. Hmm. Not yet. The position has been in existence since the 12th century, but so far, no women have been given the honor. Since the 12th century, there's never been a woman who could have done that job. Don't <laughs> you right. think that's why? That's right. <laughs> oh, my God. And the master of the rules was initially a very senior clerk who had the responsibility of protecting the records of the court of Chancery. The Court of Chancery had jurisdiction over matters of equity, in other words, not as equity as we think about it now, perhaps. The matters of inequity, probably. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but it was jurisdiction over things like trusts, guardianships, and land law. 
in the 15th and 16th century, the workload of the Court of Chancery just exploded and it became infamous for being backlogged, expensive, inefficient, and infuriatingly slow. Then as now, I mean, legal backlog is nothing new. And again, the fact that it even had that kind of reputation and that there was a Court of Chancery that had jurisdiction over these matters and that they kept all these records of trusts, guardianship, and land law, again, goes to this ridiculous comment that you read that the English didn't keep records because they had somebody dedicated to keeping track of all those records. We took inspiration from this reputation of Office of the Master of Rolls being incredibly inefficient for Philomena and Constance's experience at Westminster, which might seem sort of familiar to anybody in this day and age who's going to try to get their you know, birth certificate and it takes all day to sit there online and wait for somebody to care about it. But by the end of this chapter, even though they have these scrolls, Constance is unfortunately in no condition to pour through all of them. She's sleeping it off. Yes, no indeed. Her boy clothes gave her a chance to drink with the lads, to peek into this other world. Yeah. And now she is incapacitated. <laughs> so we'll have to wait to see what's in the inventory. Next episode, we're going to see what trouble the Earl of Rutland is in over his pranks. Even though he didn't make it out with Constance and Philomena, he still managed to get into some trouble. So leave us a comment on our Facebook page. Pick an argument if you like. People love to talk. Hit the shop now. Buy your favorite swag. And we would really appreciate your support. Tune in next time to Time's a Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk.